Father, we um, are deeply grateful for your kindness that you have shown to us in Jesus. And Lord, particularly the kindness and the grace that you've extended to us at the Ascension. Lord, may we learn from your word and um, from Christ um, a part of what that means for us this evening. And so be with us, uh, be with me, your preacher. Um, may my, my words be your words for your people. Feed us, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you all get stars in the book for you. Look at you. You're here. This is great. <laughs> I'm joking. We, we have a bit of a skeleton crew tonight, um, and, uh, but there, it doesn't matter how many people are here, we still worship God. When two or three are gathered together, Jesus is in the midst of them, and Jesus is here, present to us, whether it's just a handful of us or the whole church. And so for that, we are deeply grateful. So this evening, we gather here to commemorate and to celebrate the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God the Father, to His throne in heaven above. And yet, this commemoration and celebration of the ascension is unknown to many Christians, especially to those from evangelical backgrounds. I know it was to, in my own upbringing. The theological reality and practical significance of the ascension has been lost or unknown. And this is, I think, deeply problematic for us as Christians, as a larger church. For several years, I taught introduction to the New Testament for an evangelical college. And when we came to Acts chapter 1 and to the ascension of Jesus, most of my students were shocked. I mean, outright, as much as you can gather a shock from teaching online, they were shocked to know that Jesus, when he ascended, still has a human body. Utterly shocked at that reality, shocked to discover that it actually matters, the ascension matters to the overarching story of what God is doing in in creation and redemption in this world. They were shocked to learn that Jesus is still an embodied man, a God-man nonetheless, but an embodied man sitting there beside God at his right hand. They were surprised that the resurrection, that the resurrected and ascended Jesus still possessed that human body. And this surprise emerged from a false notion that God's plan for us and for creation means that we move from an embodied earthly existence to a heavenly spiritual one. That is a disembodied existence. They were operating under a false and unbiblical assumption that the physical stuff of this world, like our bodies, would ultimately pass away didn't, doesn't have eternal significance. It would pass away, and what we would have to look forward to is some spiritual existence and some non-physical heaven. And with this assumption, my students thought that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he became a spirit. I mean, I was, I was shocked, but I don't know what I was expecting. They thought he, was, he became a spirit there at the right hand of God. Yet our reading from Acts chapter 1 and our reading from the Gospel of Luke this morning, they're clear. Jesus spent 40 days, 40 days teaching his disciples, as, as Luke records it in Acts, about the kingdom of God and this one important fact, I hope you picked it up, presenting himself to them alive after his suffering by many proofs, by many proofs. Jesus went out of his way, out of his way to prove to his disciples that he was indeed still flesh and blood. For one reason, I mean, it's kind of hard to believe that someone is risen from the dead. And even though they're ancient folks and we somehow think that they were more like accustomed to that, no, no, (laughs) 
right? That, that wasn't a thing for them, an everyday occurrence. So they needed to be, you know, Jesus needed to prove to them that he was alive from the dead. And so he went out of his way to prove that, that this was this body he had was indeed flesh and blood, that it was real. He, so many times in the post-resurrection accounts, what is Jesus doing with them? He's eating. He's eating. He's proving. Over, touch me. Touch Peter. Put your hands in my wounds. Eating. He's proving. He's going out of his way to prove to him that he's, he has a flesh and blood and body. And this was exactly how the early church read Acts chapter 1 and how they understood the ascension of Jesus. Just listen to Tertullian writing around A.D. 225, he says, Jesus is still sitting there as a man. Jesus is still sitting there at the right hand of the Father, man yet God, the last Adam yet the primary word, flesh and blood yet purer than ours. Jesus is still sitting there as a man, as the God-man. The early church read the Scriptures more clearly at this point than my students did, maybe sometimes more clearly than we do, understanding understanding them to teach, the Scriptures to teach, that Jesus' incarnation extended beyond His death and resurrection into the age to come. Into the age to come. And not only the early church, but the Reformers as well maintain this understanding. The Westminster Larger Catechism states in response to question 53, do you know that question? I don't. I don't know the question off the head. But But here's the response to that question. Christ was exalted in His ascension in that 40 days after His resurrection. He, in our nature, our nature, our body, like everything that it means to be human, our nature, and as our head, triumphing over enemies, visibly, visibly went up into the highest heavens. And at this point, you might be asking, I think my students were constantly asking me during that week, during that lesson, why does this matter? Why does the ascension matter? Why does it matter if Jesus ascended to heaven as an embodied man? Why does it matter? And, and here's the answer in part. In Jesus, this is what the, the ascension declares to us boldly, in Jesus, humanity and divinity are united in one person. For all eternity, not, not just for a short period of time, like God, then that would tell us that maybe God's going to do away with all this physical stuff. But no, for all eternity... In one person, humanity and divinity are forever united. He goes up into heaven as the God-man. Jesus, the Son, shares in the glory that He had with the Father and the Holy Spirit before the creation of the world. And He brings our humanity, our human nature, into that glory with Him. That's a preview. It's a foretaste of what what we're going to be experiencing. And as a result, there is perhaps no more powerful sign of our salvation than the ascension. For it makes clear that our Lord has raised us, not only from the graves, not only just resurrection, and not only from hell, saved us from damnation, but He has raised us into the eternal life and joy of the Holy Trinity. That is ours. That is our birthright now. We, this is what we have to look forward to communion with God for all eternity. The ascension proclaims loudly and clearly that we truly become participants in the very life of God, partakers of the divine nature by grace in and through the ascended Lord Jesus. St. Leo the Great captures this so well in his well-known sermon on the ascension when he proclaims, it was certainly a great and indescribable source of joy 
when in the sight of the heavenly multitudes, the nature, the nature of our human race, again, the totality of what it is to be human, including our bodies, the nature of our human race ascended over the dignity of the heavenly creatures. It passed the angelic powers and was raised beyond the heights of archangels. In its ascension, our human race did not stop at any other height until this same nature was received at the seat of the eternal Father. Our human nature, united with divinity, with the divinity of the Son, was on the throne of His glory. And so, Leo kind of ends that section of his sermon by this, let us exalt, let us exalt, dearly beloved, with worthy joy, worthy joy, and with a holy thanksgiving. Today we are not only established, we are not only established as possessors of paradise, but we have even penetrated the heights of the heavens in Christ. Beyond our wildest expectations is the grace of God at work in the ascension. So if we overlook or ignore the biblical teaching that Jesus ascended into heaven in the body in which he suffered, died, and was raised in your life, we ignore the marvelous truth that is our very source for joy and hope and boldness and comfort. The ascension of Jesus is good news for us. To begin with, the ascension of Jesus into heaven, taking our flesh and blood with Him as His own, tells us that God loves our bodies. He loves your body. He loves this creation. When Jesus bodily ascended to the Father's right hand, it means that the material universe which God created is good. It's still good. It might be marred, but it's worth redeeming. Your body Yourself, this creation, is worthy of redemption because God has said so. Because God deemed it worthy of redemption by sending His Son to do that. And though we look for and eagerly anticipate the new heavens and the new earth, a a new creation in which sin and death have no place, it is still going to be in some sense. When heaven descends and becomes one with earth, the heaven, the new heavens and new earth, will still in some sense be a physical place. And actually, I think it's at Lewis, it might be even more physical, more material. The fullness of what it is is going to be able to participate in the full depth of reality. Your body, along with this creation, will be able to participate in the full dimension of this creation. And that's good news. That is good news because all that we love about God's good creation now, its beauty and majesty, will be part of what God has in store for us throughout eternity. The joy of life, all that stuff will just be amplified a thousand times over. And the ascension tells us that. It tells us that. So Jesus is the preview. He's the sneak peek. He's the trailer of our embodied existence in the kingdom of God. There's even more amazing consequences to Jesus taking our humanity with him into the glory of the triune God. It means that in Jesus Christ, God is eternally joined to His human creation. He's eternally joined to His human creation. Listen to what St. Paul says in God is God's ultimate purpose for us as believers from Romans chapter 8. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called And those whom he called, he also justified. 
and those whom He justified, He also glorified. God's ultimate purpose is for you and I to be conformed to Christ. Jesus has united His divinity with our humanity. He has taken on and still retains His human nature. And now if we are to be conformed to, that is to be made like Christ, this means that we will, as human creatures, become partakers of the divine nature. And this is exactly what Peter says in his second epistle. When he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His glory and excellence by which He has granted us His precious and very great promises. And don't miss this last part. So that through them, through those great and precious promises, you may become partakers of His divine nature. God will share His life with us so fully that even as finite creatures, we will nonetheless partake of His divinity, partake of His divinity. In fact, the only thing that might be more scandalous than Christ eternally sharing our human nature is that by God's design, we will share in His divinity. St. Athanasius captures this so well in his daring declaration when he says, God became man so that men might become gods, lowercase g. And that's what C.S. Lewis was talking about in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, when he wrote, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Do you you hear the good news in that? Do you recognize the good news in this? It means that no matter how messed up you've been, no matter how messed up you are right now or have been in the past, no matter what the ravages of sin have done to your life or to your body or to your mind or to your soul, no matter how hard you have struggled, no matter what kind of physical or mental disability you deal with or your child may deal with now, no matter if you feel, if you just feel unworthy, no matter. If you are a baptized, born-again child of the living God, you are destined to such majesty. You are destined to such beauty. And that one day, if, if someone could see you now, what you will be in the future, they would be unable to look at you because it would be an unbearable glory. An unbearable glory. That's what we have to look forward to. That's what the ascension proclaims to us, is that we will be sharing one day in the glory of God in Jesus Christ. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians, or or the book of Colossians chapter 3? This is how closely united you are with Christ. You are hidden with Christ in God. You are hidden with Christ in God. You will share, we will share in the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Is that not what Paul said from what we just read from Romans 8? Where does that litany of things end? It ends in us being glorified. Glorified in the glory that is Jesus' along with the Father and the Spirit. And this is our hope. This is the trajectory of our lives as Christians. That by God's grace and work of His Spirit within us, Our lives are being conformed moment by moment into the very image and life of Jesus. And in Jesus, we become more and more like God. Now, this trajectory of being conformed more and more into the image of God, that is, into the image of Jesus, it is work. That trajectory is work. 
It's hard work, especially when the world, the flesh, and the devil are actively seeking to thwart the purposes of God. Yet, thankfully, yet, thankfully, this is God's work. This is God's work that He accomplishes in our lives by His grace and through the power of His Spirit that dwells in us. And our work, our work is to respond to His work, to respond to His Spirit's power with faith and loyalty and obedience to His work in our lives, in others and in this world. There will be times when we are discouraged in this, tempted to respond to God or not to respond to God in these ways. And there will be times when we may wonder whether God is at work in us or in this world at all. And maybe after a week like this week, we've experienced that. We were like, where are you, God? We wonder where God is at. especially when the circumstances of this world and maybe circumstances of our lives may seem to speak against His work. And it is moments like these when the ascension really does matter. Because when Jesus ascended into heaven, He not only ascended as King, which is what we celebrate this day, but He also ascended as our great High Priest. And so Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for you and for humanity and for His creation as one who knows what it is, as a human, as a human, as a part of this creation. He knows what it is to struggle, to suffer, to weep, to mourn. In these moments, the ascension directs us to the gospel of grace. Jesus Christ Himself, so that we might look to Him and see that in Jesus we have someone who knows all about whatever it is we are facing, whatever it is our neighbors are facing. He has been through it all, through suffering and death and separation, and He will carry you, He will carry you, He will carry us through whatever you are facing into resurrection life. Jesus can carry you through whatever it is into resurrection life. He will carry you into the glory He shares with His Father. You know, He hears your cry. He hears your cry for faith when faith is hard to come by. He hears your cry for strength when you feel like you have nothing left. He hears your cry for victory when that besetting sin continues to trip you up. He hears you. In the risen and ascended Jesus, we have someone who is praying for us, who is praying for you, for this world. He hears your groans and your prayers and your longings of your heart, and He intercedes for you and with you and in you to the Father, not as some spirit that, has, that can no longer identify with what it is to be human, but as a man, as a human. You see, the ascended Jesus takes our prayers, thoughts, and longings No matter how feeble, selfish, and inarticulate they may be, He takes them and He cleanses them, makes them His prayers. And in a wonderful exchange, He makes His prayers our prayers and presents us and them to the Father as His dear children, crying, Abba, Father. I think as we can see this evening, the ascension is no incidental part of the narrative of redemption, of the story of Jesus. 
in Jesus, our King and High Priest. In Him, our humanity has been eternally united with His divinity. And as our King, He is committed to His creation, to our bodies, to the stuff of this world, because for Him, matter matters. His creation matters. And as our High Priest, He is enabled, he is enabled to intercede for us with sympathy and insight into what it is to struggle as a human being in this broken world. He knows what it's like, just like the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 4. He has sympathy with you because he knows what it's like to be a human on this planet. So he can intercede for us before the throne of God in heaven until that day when he will send us, catch us up, Give us resurrected bodies to be like Him, to share in His glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.